Let's pray together one more time. Father, Lord, we come before you now and we are so grateful for your word. We're so grateful for your promises, your truth. And Lord, we just pray, God, as we look now at what it means to have spiritual discipline, we pray that you would give us newfound zeal. If we have lost it, oh God, help us now to recover it. Lord, if we've waned in our commitment, if we've grown weary, strengthen the knees that are weak and the hands that are feeble. Lord, strengthen us for your great cause. Strengthen us according to your loving kindness and revive us according to the way. Revive us according to your word, Lord, we pray. Help us now. Give us ears to hear and give me a mouth to speak. Lord, I ask for your help. I am nothing but a miserable, poor, weak, and empty and devoid and inadequate servant. I need you to help me, Lord, to speak to your people that are gathered here today. We need encouragement, God. We need your spirit to fill our hearts with hope and expectancy. We need you, Lord, to revive us again, Lord, so that we can hope in your promises, Lord, and not be discouraged by the things that we see all around us in our families, in our homes, in our culture, in our world. Help us now to set our our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. Well, so, uh, really on my heart today for us is just to do a Bible study with you um, regarding uh, the place of spiritual disciplines in um, personal revival, what we've been looking at lately. And really, uh, I really have three different aspects that I want to focus on, three different areas Three different topics, three different ministries that we can talk about. But, uh, you know, the last couple of weeks we've been looking at the character of God and we looked at the attributes of God and we looked at the person of Jesus as sort of the the, the intimate, uh, tangible manifestation of God's character in the person and work of Jesus Christ so that, in a sense, we've looked at the who of revival, and now I really want to get down to the practical nitty-gritty of what we could call the how of revival or personal growth as a Christian, uh, personal renewal. The Psalms are filled with this language of being revived and being renewed and stirring our hearts up to know and to seek the Lord. And so that's really what I want to do here. Now, you see the text before us, and again, I take this text only to point out to you the benefit of spiritual discipline. Uh, the Apostle Paul makes it very clear that what Paul wants for for uh, for, for Timothy, and of course everyone who is listening to Timothy as a young pastor, is he wants them to grow, to be uh, nourished, and that's what he says here. He says, he says, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and the sound doctrine. That word sound is literally the word that speaks of having healthy body. Don't we all want that? Well, more important, as Paul is going to point out here, than a healthy body which will only last so long in this life, is to have a healthy soul because a healthy soul will, as he says, have profit for the world to come also. And he says, don't be distracted. That's what he means when he says, do not have anything to do with worldly fables that are only fit for old women, which is kind of a euphemism for saying, don't listen to wives' tales. Don't get bogged down with endless controversies, as he talked about earlier. He says, he says but discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. 
Uh, Discipline is something that we ought to be extremely familiar with as Americans. After all, we we spend billions of dollars a year on health, billions of dollars a year on fitness and uh, learning how to uh, have a you know, a, a, a healthy body and learning how to fit into those clothes that you want to wear. And, and people spend thousands and millions of dollars on going to the gym and buying exercise equipment that they end up selling at their garage sale. And every, New Year's is big, right? That's where everybody makes their, their resolution for those garage sales. That's <laughs> where they end up anyways. But we know what it is to be disciplined. You all can do it. You all do it. No one here just kind of plays around with the idea of getting up tomorrow for work. You do it. It's not an option because you got to put food on the table, because you need to provide, because you want to live in the house and the home and the place in which you live. No one here struggles with discipline. The question is, is sometimes, is our discipline, does our disciplinary life have a right perspective? Do we understand what Paul is saying when he says that bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come? In other words, the godly life that you you lead in this world will reverberate into eternity and will have great significance there. None of us, brothers and sisters, will regret the discipline, the blood, sweat, and tears that we invest into the realm of godliness. It was William Carey who said, I would rather burn out or wear out than rust out. In other words, work because it's worth it. And That's what I want to challenge us with today is how do we work at godliness if we want to be revived by God? Because don't you agree, we live in a world so busy, so distracted, so inundated, media, I mean, what's next? Just put the computer chip in the head or the hand or whatever's coming because where else can we go? We are inundated. We wake up to rings and dings and bings and vibrations and everything else. We're surrounded by media. Things are beeping in the house. I don't even know what's beeping anymore. I tell Trish, go take care of it. No, I'm just joking. I take care of stuff like that. But you know what I mean. We are living in a virtual world of technological overload. We are inundated by this. And so I say that only to say we're busy. And if you live in North Texas, like we do, it takes 20 minutes to go anywhere. Have you guys noticed that? It takes 20, 25 minutes to go anywhere around here. You're going to go to small group, 20 minutes. Go to church, 20 minutes. You're going to go down to Pastor Emilio's house, at least 20 minutes. It's just, we're busy. We're driving. We're texting. Don't drive and text. That's it. I almost saw an accident. Anyway, we're so inundated. So my question is real simple. In the shuffle of life. And then throw on the things that you have to do that are good for you, that are right and necessary and godly in and of itself. Raising a family. Trying to be a good husband, good provider, working hard at work. Commuting back and forth. Doing the things that you must do. And the question comes, where is the practice of spiritual disciplines in the midst of all of that? 
Do we even have the capacity to put it into our Google Calendar? Where is the time with God? We have to be very, very careful here, folks, that we do not just think communion with God is going to happen somewhere down the line. It is not. You must make it a priority. I've exhorted you before. You have to have a place in your house designated for Bible study. Don't just think, well, I'll do it just when I'm laying around the couch. No, you should have a little sacred desk somewhere that you go off to, that you can set your books and your, and your, and your notepad and you can listen to a sermon. And You should have a place where you go, where you interact and have intercourse with God on a regular basis. This is the only way, as Paul will go on to say uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, to really profit from the Word of God, the, the training in righteousness that he speaks about there. Because that is what the Word of God is for, a training in righteousness. And so, let's get down to some building blocks of godliness, building blocks of a, of a life of spiritual renewal and growth. I'm going to give you three different aspects. Three, I'm going to call these ministries. Ministries to you. Ministries in you. Ministries that flow from you. Number one, the ministry of prayer. It all begins with prayer. Prayer is so essential. Prayer is the entry point of our conversation with God. Prayer is where we make our petitions, our requests. Prayer is where we roll off all of our burdens to God. Prayer is so foundational and fundamental. Uh, prayer is also uh, necessary. Remember, the, uh, remember Jesus when he went to Gethsemane. I mean, was there a more pivotal time in the life of Jesus Christ than when he went into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, where he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood, when he was under such excruciating anguish of heart and soul, and he tells his uh, uh, disciples one thing. He didn't tell them, hey, go start a church. He didn't tell them, hey, pull out the guitar. He didn't say, hey, you know, um, you know read a great volume on theology. You know what he told them? He said, be watchful and pray. And yet... Hasn't even been an hour, he comes back from Gethsemane, and what, is happen what happens there? Mark tells us he found Peter sleeping. <laughs> Not even for an hour they could watch in prayer. I mean, what a token of our prayerlessness. Let's be honest. There's a deep poverty in us all with prayer. And I think we would pray more if we really understood the efficacy of prayer, the value of prayer, the potency of prayer. And when I say that, oh, I don't mean anything like the Christian cliche, prayer works, right? We know, hopefully, the dynamics that it is God who works in prayer. Isn't it amazing how politicians deify faith and prayer and things like that? Well, I hold on to my faith and my prayers. What about God? You ever hold on to him? Anyway, that's just a pet peeve of mine. Prayer is not to be deified. It cannot be separated. It is not a magical potion of itself. It has no mystical power on its own. It's not an incantation or a charm or a good luck thing. It is holy communion and conversation with the triune God of Scripture. 
Some of you may have this volume that I turn to in preparation for this, The Valley of Vision. The Valley of Vision is a collection of anonymous Puritan prayers that literally engulf us into a world of godliness and a, and a world of a, a, a biblical prayer. I thought, if sometimes you don't know where to begin in prayer or you don't know how to grow in prayer, get the Valley of Vision. You know, get on Amazon, don't ask permission from the wife, pull out the credit card, get the Valley of Vision, get the prayer book. And start reading those prayers and you will feel so small, but strangely, you will be lifted up so high. Listen to this prayer. We don't know who wrote it. They're anonymous. This chapter is called In Prayer. And this is what it says. O Lord, in prayer I launch out far into the eternal world. And on that broad ocean, my soul triumphs over all evils on the shore of mortality. Time, with its gay amusements and its cruel disappointments, never appears so inconsiderate than then. In prayer, I see myself as nothing. I find my heart going after thee with intensity and long with vehement thirst to live unto thee. Blessed be the strong gales of the Spirit that speed me on the way to the new Jerusalem. In prayer, all things here below vanish. Nothing seems important but holiness of heart and salvation of others. In prayer, all of my worldly cares, fears, anxieties disappear and are all little, of little significance as a puff of wind. In prayer, my soul inwardly exalts with lively thoughts at what thou art doing for thy church. And I long that thou shouldest get thyself a great name from sinners returning to Zion. In prayer, I am lifted above the frowns and the flatteries of life and taste heavenly joys. Entering into eternal world, I can give myself to thee with a whole heart to be thine forever. In prayer, I can place all my concerns into your hands to be entirely at your disposal, having no will or interest of my own. In prayer, I can intercede for my friends, my ministers, sinners, the church, thy kingdom to come, with greatest freedom, ardent hopes, as the son to his father, as a lover to the beloved, help me to be all prayer and never to cease praying. That's what I mean. You feel small right now? My prayers don't sound like that. <laughs> But it's inspirational, right? I want to be lifted up out of this world and into the eternal world of God. I want to be caught up, as it were, into God. Prayer is the vehicle to get you there. So we can read an elegant prayer like that. We can look at that. We can stare at a quote like this and be encouraged, but oftentimes we could be honest. If we're honest with ourselves, it doesn't describe us. But here's the question I have. Can it? And I'm convinced it can. But it begins by noticing something. 
that prayer of this kind is fundamentally spiritual. Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Because to be rich in prayer begins by professing your poverty before God. The Apostle Paul, who gave us in Romans 8 such an extensive treatment of the subject of prayer and the influence of the Spirit upon us, also talks about this poverty. Matter of fact, I would say it's foundational and it's, it, it's worth looking at. Romans 8, beginning in verse 26. Look at this. In the same way, the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, He helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought to or as we uh, should. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to His purpose. Now, oftentimes, verse 28 goes with verse 29 in most of our Bibles and a lot of times when we look at this passage. But I throw in verse 28 to say, prayer and providence here go together. But notice how he begins. In the same way, the Spirit helps us with our asthenia. Asthenia is a Greek word that means inadequacy. It means Well, in a sense, it speaks of a sense of inadequacy, but the word really speaks of being weak. But this is what's important about this text, is that the Apostle Paul doesn't say, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, plural. Did you notice? He helps us not in our weaknesses. What does that remind you of? Your weaknesses. And you would be tempted to remind, well, my weakness of zeal, my weakness of the flesh, my, my weakness of faith, my unbelief, my, my, my inconsistent, everything. I mean, where do I start? Where do I begin, right? But I think there's a different dynamic at work here. When he uses the singular weakness, I think what he's doing here is he's speaking of a specific aspect or a specific idea of weakness. So we might get out of this what Paul doesn't intend here. Now, follow the context very closely. Because this began back in verse 18. Notice in verse 26, he says, in the same way. That means that's a coordinate uh, a clause there. In other words, it is connected to the preceding paragraph. And what is the preceding paragraph about? That the creation itself has been subjected to a state of futility. See that verse 20? The creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption and the freedom of the glory of the children of God. In other words, what I'm suggesting here is that this weakness defines us in our totality. We are in a state of weakness because we are bound to this age where the creation itself groans. That's where we live. We live not in a future eschatological age, in the future, in a future kingdom, in heaven, but we are here in this present age, this present stage of weakness and futility, and we are bound to this place still. 
And we see evidences of it everywhere, don't we? We are bound to a world of futility, a world of frustration, a world of sin, chaos, destruction, disorder. And because of that, the Spirit knows we need Him. Because in this age, in this life, we are weakened to the place where we do not pray what we should. Is that what your translation says? I looked, this, I looked at this closely, and it's actually what I would call a, a divine necessity. The Greek word is day. It's a verb that literally means must. Ah, that's, that's a little bit more powerful, isn't it? We don't pray what we must. And what is it that we must pray? Well, we must pray according to the will of God. But we don't pray according to the will of God as we ought to because we are in a state of weakness and therefore the Spirit comes and helps us so that in our groaning, in our longing, in our yearning, and even in those inexpressible, unintelligible words, it's not that you're speaking in tongues, it's that you're just groaning in your heart and soul because of the agony of what you see all around you and in you. And you say, oh God, ah, I know what I must pray, but I just don't even know how to. And the Spirit takes over and speaks it to God perfectly, in perfect English. <laughs> Thank God for His Spirit. Therefore, our state, even though we are weak, is not helpless or hopeless because we have an advocate, we have a helper, we have a comforter in the Spirit of God. Now, now that we know the kind of prayer that God wants from us, dependent prayer, spirit-wrought prayer, spirit-filled prayer, spirit-empowered prayer, then it makes sense that now we look at all the passages in the Bible that tell us pray, 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 pray. This is God telling weak people to pray big things. And the only reason we can is because the Spirit helps us in our weakness Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18. With all prayer, petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. With this in view, be on alert. With all perseverance, petitions for all the saints. Psalm 86, 3. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I cry all the day long. Meaning he cries out. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, how simple is this? Do you want a comprehensive theology on prayer? Here's the verse. Pray without ceasing. There, you graduated. <laughs> this is the deepest Pauline theology on prayer you're going to get. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, Therefore I want the men everywhere, in every place. Listen, men, because this is a masculine here, masculine pronoun. Listen, men, I want men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands. What do holy hands look like? Without wrath and without dissension. In other words, don't be hindered by your anger to pray. Don't be hindered by the fact that you, you, you are to get vulnerable with God in prayer. Lifting up your hands is a symbol of surrender. Let all of the macho stuff, let all the facade 
fall to the ground. Get vulnerable like a child with God in prayer. Lift up your hands. No wrath. No doubting. Mark, we are told, keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, oh, but the flesh is weak. You see that? And on and on and on we can go. We need to move to the next one. Ministry of prayer, second. Ministry of Scripture in our lives. And I conceive of this in two ways. Taking the word in and taking the word out. You want revival with God. You must be saturated in the Bible. Our minds, when we come to the Savior, are dirty, filthy, and soiled by the world. We must go undergo a, con- a conforming process. He's got to stick us in the washer and dryer of His Word. He's got he's to stick us in the dishwasher of His Word. We need to be cleansed. We need to be sanitized. We're walking in dirty. And we need to be cleansed, renewed, transformed. We need new thoughts. Because as it were before, our thoughts were only in accordance to our own will. We, we, we prayed according to our own thoughts. or We didn't pray at all, I'm sorry. We thought according to our own thoughts. In other words, we thought autonomously from God. But when a person comes to God, then your thoughts follow the thinking of God. And we are to think the thoughts of God after Him. And we can only know the thoughts of God by Scripture. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 13 and 17. There are two directions in this world. There are those that will continue down the path of autonomous reason, trying to think independently of God and His thoughts, and there are those that will conform to the thinking of God. Now, which trajectory are we on and what trajectory should we continue to go? Look at uh, 2 Timothy 3.13. Evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. There's the challenge. There's the conflict. We live in a world of deception. But you, Timothy, this is Paul telling Timothy, you, however, Continue in the things that you have learned and become convinced of. You see that? Oh, brothers and sisters, are you convinced of the Word of God? Are you convinced that this is the Word of God? If you are not, then you will constantly be hindered in this, in your pursuit. How can you pursue something with great vigor and passion and ardent desire if you're not even convinced that it is what it says it is. He tells the Thessalonians, you receive the Word of God as for what it is, the Word of God, not the Word of man. So we have to have a a devotion to the Word of God. We have to be convinced by it. He says, knowing from whom you have learned it, and that was from his parents, or that was from his mother and his grandmother, Eunice and Lois. They had taught him the Word of God says, we little Timothy. And the Word of God eventually convinced his heart and the miracle of regeneration happened and he was saved. And now Paul is saying, you, he says, keep going that way. Continue in those things. And watch this, 
and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which is able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture. How much Scripture do I have to take in? All Scripture is inspired of God. That means a supernatural breathed out by God. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, the very thing we're talking about, spiritual discipline, so that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. Oh, this is talking about the sufficiency of Scripture. The Word of God is sufficient, is able to make you competent, where you are not going to be lacking in spiritual discernment. But with equal rigor and devotion and commitment, as we take the Word of God in, brothers and sisters, I want to exhort us today to take the Word out. We are not to be like a, like a dam that holds up the water of the Word. We're like a mighty rushing wind. We're, I don't even know what the the illustration to use, but it's got to flow into us and it's got to flow through us like a spigot. Is that a good analogy? Right? It's got to have the capacity to go out from us. Just like 1 Thessalonians 1.8 says, the Word of God was, was sounding forth from the church to all of the world. This is a true means of grace. You know that evangelism, like prayer, I thought, you know, I'm going to be preaching on prayer and evangelism, partly. Both are severely neglected in the church. The statistics on prayer are scary in terms of how much time, how often, how regular, how devoted people are to the ministry of prayer. Oh, you know what? You go to church after church after church, this church, you go to every church, and I tell you, you got ministry after ministry after ministry, and you, you know, elders sit around the room, and they think of different ministries to start up, but the ministry of prayer often goes un totally neglected. Matter of fact, I was listening to a chapel message by a pastor that had been pastoring now for, oh, I think he said he was pastoring about 25 years, and he came to speak to young pastors, getting ready to enter into the ministry, and the first thing he warned them about was, watch out, because prayer in the shuffle of ministry, first thing to go. You got to study, you got to put together your sermon, you need a counsel, you need to sit with people, you need to do meetings, all this and that and the other thing, and prayer is usually the first thing that gets sacrificed. So protect prayer. But you know what? Equally speaking, evangelism. I've been part of ministries for evangelism for a long time. I, I, um, I love evangelism. When I became a Christian, I went back to the factory where I was working at for many, many years, and immediately my coworkers began to challenge my faith. They thought, wait a minute, you're the guy that we used to party with, and what happened to you? <laughs> right? So immediately, oh, come on. You're really getting into that Christian stuff. Because, you know, I went from listening to all the garbage on the radio. You used to have a radio there. And I, next thing you know, I walk in and Emilio's listening to religious stuff. What happened to him? Right? Well, so immediately my faith was under attack. So immediately I had to learn how to defend the faith. And so I started devouring everything I can get my hands on in terms of how do I defend the faith. And so evangelism, I don't want to say it came easy to me, but it came 
It was necessary for me. I had to give an answer for the hope that lies within me. But you know what? I've been part of ministry after ministry after ministry of evangelism. And for years, I went, I did a door-to-door ministry. You guys know who Emil Zwayne is? Some of you do. He is, um, now leads up Living Waters, Ray Comfort's ministry. But he and I did door-to-door evangelism for years together. And uh, every Saturday morning, we'd wait to see who would show up. You know, a church of 400 people, and uh, there was me and Easy again. <laughs> we put it in the bulletin. We announced it, you know. And uh, week after week, it was typically just he and I. It just shows you we just don't do these fu- fundamental things well, these foundational things, these simple things. But David said this in terms of connecting evangelism with revival. Let me read a verse to you. This is Psalm 51. Here in the context of repentance, verse 10, he says, Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. That's not talking about David saying, God, God, don't unsave me. That's not what he's saying. It's not as if David's saying here, I can lose my salvation. That's not what he's saying. He's talking about the blessing of the presence of the Spirit in his life. In a sense, kind of the equivalent of what the New Testament talks about in terms of quenching the Spirit. He doesn't want to quench God's Spirit in his life. He says, restore to me the joy of my salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will go hide away in my books. No. Then I will go into the sewing circles of the church and be so introverted that no one will ever know what happened to me. No. Then I will teach sinners your ways, and sinners will be converted. (laughs) In other words, once you restore to me the joy of my salvation, then I will go out into the world and see sinners converted by the power of God. So many ways. Folks, I understand when you think of evangelism, what a daunting task, is it not? Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, just to show you how daunting this really is. And be, don't think anything strange has happened to you if you think, wow, what a task, what a labor. It takes, I have to stir everything within me to do this. It must have come so easy to somebody like Paul. Oh, no, 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 brothers and sisters. It wasn't easy for him, and it's not going to be easy for us. Look what Paul says. 2 Corinthians 2.14, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ, manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So there's a dual effect that the Christian has in the world. To the one, an aroma of death to death. To the other, an aroma of life to life. And look at this. Who is sufficient for these things? In other words, Paul understood his inadequacy to be a representative of Jesus Christ. It's not easy. It's not easy to make the room awkward at work in the meeting, in the break room, when the jokes are sullied with immoral and sexual innuendos, and there's the righteous Christian not engaging in the same kind of filthy speech, not taking part in the coarse jesting, and you are a symbol of death. You're a party pooper, 
right? You're, 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 uh, you're, you're going to kill our buzz, so to speak. You, are, you represent death to those that are dying. That's the way that Paul is making it sound. But to those that are being saved, you are life to life. You, you, you bring life. You symbolize life. And because they are God's people, if they are God's people, they come to life through your witness. Jesus understood what it meant to be overwhelmed by evangelism. In John chapter 4, after ministering and ministering and ministering, John chapter 4, after having the encounter with the woman at the well, and then the town coming out, and they all seeking Jesus, and getting done with other ministry in Galilee, he just got done being spent in Galilee, and now the disciples are realizing something that we all realize every day. They're getting hungry. Um. How do you do when you get hungry? A lot of us get really grumpy when we get hungry, don't we? I mean, let's just be honest. But look at the disciples come to Jesus and say, this is John 4.31. The disciples were urging him, Rabbi, eat. Right? He said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, they didn't get it. No one brought him anything to eat, did he? Nobody brought him a snack, right? Nobody gave him a power bar as far as, we're, as far as we know. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor and others have labored for you and you have entered into their labor. What is he saying? What he's saying is that even right now, we can begin to have a little bit of a foretaste of the final harvest, the great reaping, the day of judgment, in a sense, the great assize when God is going to separate the sheep and the goats, when people are going to stream into God or stream away from God at judgment. And what he's saying is through evangelism, you can already participate in that great eschatological reality that is coming. What's missing? Perspective. Perspective. We need to, brothers and sisters, we need to lift up our eyes and see that the fields are white. It's all around us. We have no excuse, but we will give an account. George Whitfield said, Oh God, that I had ten arms, I would do ten times as much for my master. And this is a guy that, I mean, who preached the gospel more than George Whitfield? George Whitfield, historically speaking, is known as the first American celebrity. When he came to town to preach, people dropped whatever they were doing to go hear him preach. Presidents went to hear him preach. 
People would be plowing out in the field. They would leave their plowshares and they would run out to find wherever Whitfield was preaching. Thousands of people would come to hear Whitfield preach and it wasn't easy for Whitfield to preach. You know that they hated him. They blew horns in his face. They tried to urinate on him while he was preaching from a tree. A person tried to urinate on him. They chopped up live cats. They chopped them up into pieces and flung it at him. They despised him and hated him for the gospel. And yet Whitfield said, oh, that I could do more. What's our excuse? Boy, that's convicting, right? Go talk to Pastor Chris. He'll tell you all about it. (laughs) But I just leave that, I just leave that there. There's, There's nothing else I can do. I don't want to motivate you out of guilt. You better go share the gospel or else. No, 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 no. That's not the voice of the Savior. I'll tell you what the Word says. I could try to lead somewhat by example, and then I can tell you what's at stake in all of it. You have to go do business with God and say, why is it that I don't open my mouth with the person next to me? Real Christianity. Final thing, and then we're done, and that is the ministry of worship. The ministry of worship is another great means to personal growth and revival. Let me just say this about personal worship There's, there, or, or the ministry of worship. There are two kinds. There's a worship in general, and then there is explicit worship. And let me focus in on this. General worship just means the whole Christian life is worship, right? The whole Christian life is worship. Whatever you do, whether you eat, whether you drink, or whatever you do, do everything to the glory of God. What verse is that? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Do whatever you do to the glory of God. In other words, your whole life should be dignified as worship to God. But there is also an explicit aspect of the worship of God that we need to be revived in. Let me read to you some texts, what I mean by this explicit worship. Psalm 42, verses 1 to 2. I really believe many of us have lost this sort of primitive Christian love. The psalmist says, As a deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul it pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. You see, you hear the words of the psalmist there? He is yearning for God. When is the last time, brothers and sisters, that you found yourself longing for the presence of God? As as, as the psalmist goes on to say, when am I going to be in your presence? Psalm 63, verse 1. Oh God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. In other words, there's passion involved. If to you Christianity is just sort of a it's just sort of a boring rote kind of religious exercise and you can rest assured you have not had an encounter with the living God. It's just absolute fact. We have to have affections for God, zeal for God. We have to seek him earnestly. God told the children of Israel that the judgments of the covenant were coming upon them, not just because they did not do what was right or what was right and did what was wrong, but it goes on to say in, in um, oh boy, where's that? I think it's Deuteronomy uh, 27, maybe I'm wrong on that, but he says, it's because 
you did not serve the Lord your God with gladness. God is interested in our heart. He doesn't just want stand up, sit down, open, turn, come in, come out, drive up, drive home. God wants heart behind it all that's communing with Him, longing for Him. The psalmist says, my flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Let me leave you with this thought because I know I've gone long today. I don't apologize because I, I, I try to keep my sermons at a certain time, but there's just other times where I know I'm in trouble on Saturday night and I'm going to go long and this is one of those times, but I was just so struck. God indicted the children of Israel. Listen to this now because it's very controversial. Because they did not stir themselves up for God. Why is that controversial? Because most of us in here would be aware that we need to be careful not to whip ourselves up into some kind of emotional frenzy. Correct? Enough discernment ministries out there to tell you that. But now listen to the living God talk. Isaiah 64, verse 7. There is no one who calls on my name who arouses themselves to lay hold of you. Oh God, Think about that. The word arouse just means to provoke, to stir. That's right, brothers and sisters. How do we stir ourselves for God? Maybe some advice by Jonathan Edwards would be good. Jonathan Edwards is an expert at this because it was Edwards who, after the Great Awakening, that's that period of church history where um, right after the Enlightenment, it was, it was a period of time where, where God was doing, great, or right before the, the Enlightenment period, rather, God was doing this great uh, revival in, 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 uh, in, in, in colonial America and in some parts of England, and Jonathan Edwards, as some have called it, Jonathan Edwards was, was basically like the mind, he was the lightning rod, him and Whitfield, the lightning rod of the Great Awakening, and he saw masses and thousands of people converted to Jesus Christ. But he was also a critique, or rather, he was also a critic as he critiqued the Great Awakening because he saw a lot of false fire. And people were trying to duplicate in the flesh what God had done in the Spirit. And Jonathan Edwards says this in Religious Affections. He says that his aim was to raise the affections of his people as high as he could, provided that they were affected with nothing except truth. It wasn't emotional music. It wasn't a guilt trip to come forward and cry on the altar. It wasn't anything like that. It was unleashing the Word of God. It was teaching the Scriptures in their deepest sense, in their, in, in their, in their, in their theological consistency. It was teaching the whole counsel of God and, and provided that you are affected by nothing but truth. You should arouse yourself to lay hold of God. To lay hold of him. One final thing here, Jeremiah 2, 
verse 12, because this may be at the root cause of why don't we do that more? Why don't we have that much of a capacity to awaken our affections, to love, and to lay hold of God? It may be that, like Israel, we fall into this trap. Jeremiah 2, verse 12. Many of you know this verse. Be appalled, O heavens. This is the prophet speaking in the first person on behalf of God. So God is in essence saying, Be appalled, O heavens, and shudder. Be desolate, declares the Lord. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. Jeremiah 2, 12 and 13. And this is the second thing. They have hewn out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. What is that saying? If we do not go to God as the source of our joy, as the source of our pleasure, the deepest possible satisfaction that a human being can have is spiritual. But if we do not satisfy ourselves spiritually, then we will turn to the carnal cesspools of this world to try to find lasting satisfaction in this, in that, in sensuality, in fornication, in immorality, in materialism, or, or, or covetousness, or idolatry, or whatever else the spirit of this age offers us. And therefore, God says, the heavens should be appalled. Because God wants to give us honey, and we want to eat sand. God wants to give us life, and we gladly substitute the life that God wants to give us for the death of our own sin. And therefore, the worship of God very much has to do with whether or not we are willing to arouse ourselves to lay hold of God. If we do that, brothers and sisters, you can be certain that you will experience personal renewal and revival in your life. So much more to say, but I will spare you. (laughs) Let's pray to God. Father, oh God, forgive us for our blindness at times where we are even tempted to think that something else will satisfy us in this life. Forgive us, Lord, if we ever exchange the glory of our great God for the glory of things that are in this creation. We exchange your glory for something less than who you are and what you have provided us. Lord, we thank you that Your word promises us that if we abide in your word, you will abide with us. The word promises us that your will for our lives is that we would bear much fruit, that we would be productive. Lord, that's what we want, fruitful lives. And so God, help us to be spiritual men and women that prioritize their lives in such a way that will maximize our communion with God and will minimize our love of the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.